The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing to work our way through this wonderful Gospel of John. If you remember, Lazarus began chapter 12 with the warning that it was only six days till Passover. And that's the final Passover for the Lord. That was the last, began the last week of Yeshua's life. Now, after his entry into Jerusalem, Yeshua went into the temple to teach. And the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that every day of that last week, Yeshua was in the temple teaching. Now, several days before Passover, if you remember, the Gentiles came and they desired to meet with Yeshua. They approached Peter. They wanted to meet with them. So this message is conveyed to Christ and He immediately says, my hour has come. He's referring to the hour of His death and glorification. It was imminent. Now, in the closing verses of chapter 12, Yeshua gives His last discourse to the people after warning them that now judgment is being passed on the world and the light will be with them only for a little while, basically he ends his public ministry in chapter 12, verse 36 with this. He says, while you have the light, believe in the light. This is it. Okay, This is the last word we hear from Yeshua in his public ministry. And he's encouraging the Jews, while you have the light, he is the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. Then he says this, when Yeshua had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So he encouraged them to believe in the light. And then as a dramatic illustration of his theme of the passing of the light from verse 35, he departs from their presence, from the people of Jerusalem. His public ministry comes to a dramatic end. Now, in the next passages, Lazarus summarizes Yeshua's entire three-year ministry by quoting from two texts from Isaiah. First, he quotes from Isaiah 53, the song of the suffering servant that is quoted in John 12, 38. And it is this passage that most graphically specifies the details of Christ's suffering. The second passage is Isaiah 6, 10, quoted in John 12, 40. It's taken from Isaiah's call to ministry as a prophet of Yahweh. And Isaiah 6, 10 is quoted several times in the New Testament as an explanation of the blindness of the Jews and their refusal to accept Yeshua as their Messiah. Like the people of Isaiah's time, most of the Jews and Israelites have chosen darkness over the light of Christ. So the vast majority of the people of Israel did not respond to the miraculous ministry of our Lord Yeshua. Now, of course, there were some who by the grace of God responded to this. They are the ones that the Holy Spirit, through the Father, has brought to the Son. Now, this ends, chapter 12, as we finish that, ends what is known by scholars as the Book of Signs. And we've talked about that many times, and you you can understand that, right? Why is it called the Book of Signs? Because these first 12 chapters primarily concerned with the seven sign miracles which Lazarus has selected as representative of Yeshua's ministry 
and is demonstrative of who he is. And included with the signs, you know, he would do a miracle, and then there was a discourse and debate with his opponents that followed those sign miracles, explaining them or, or talking about what they meant. Most of the words and works of Yeshua in these chapters were aimed at the wider audience of both Judea and Galilee. So for these first 12 chapters, they're, going, they're basing everything off these seven signs. So it's called the book of signs, and he's trying to teach them what that sign meant. Now the last nine chapters of this gospel are known by scholars as what? Anybody have a clue? It's the book of something. No, one, no one's ever heard of this before? The last 12 are known as the book of glory. In these chapters, Yeshua accomplishes His return to the Father. This is what this is all about. He's going back to the Father now. Now, unlike the book of signs, now, you got to get this, okay? And we're going to harp on this for the, I don't know, next two years, I guess, as we go through this. But unlike the book of signs, the book of glory is addressed to those who have believed. Okay? So this first 12 chapters is all about the Gospel reaching out. The signs, the miracles, showing people He's the Christ, demonstrating who He is. Now we're shifting. And the book of glory, He's addressing believers. Those who have trusted Him. His disciples. And He is teaching His disciples. So the first part is evangelistic. The second part of this book, the book of glory, is all about discipleship. And we'll see that over and over as we go through that. Now, the book of glory, the first section of it, chapters 13 through 17, is a vision that is called the upper room discourse. I'm sure you've heard of that. It's something that is not contained in the synoptic gospels. And it represents four chapters that are, I don't know how to say this, truly spiritual communication from the Lord to His disciples. He is pouring His heart out to His children, His disciples. It's climaxed by the great high priestly prayer in chapter 17. This section, this upper room discourse, is all about the subject of love. And it's the subject of the love of Yeshua for His own, and Yeshua's calling His disciples to be like Him and love one another. So it's His love for us, and He is encouraging us to love others. Now, commenting on Lazarus' upper room discourse, John G. Mitchell writes this, Of all the Scriptures between Genesis and Revelation, I know of no greater portion as far as the people of God are concerned, than chapters 13 through 17 of John. I believe in these chapters we have the seed germ of all the truth concerning the church. That's strong. I think he might be right. He said, as well as almost all the doctrine in the New Testament, our Lord's discourse here takes us within 24 hours of the crucifixion. So basically, people, that's where we're at right now. As we come to chapter 13, we are in the last day of the Lord's life. And this upper room discourse is presented as the events and the discussion of the single evening of the night before His death. we got one day 
left in the life of the Lord. And it's going to take us a little while to get through that one day. Because he had a lot to say on this night to his people. Verse 1 of chapter 13 gives us the transition from Yeshua's public ministry to the final night, which his disciples, in this book of signs, Yeshua customarily performed a miracle. Remember that? He'd do a miracle and then he'd explain it. He'd get into a discourse. Well, in the book of glory, it's kind of reverse. He explained the significance of the death and then he went to the cross and died and rose from the dead. So let's look at these. Now, we're only going to get in one verse today. And I really debated this. I planned on getting through 11 verses. But this first verse just, I just got stuck on this first verse. There's a controversy here that I didn't want to just skip over. So we're going to deal with that, all right? Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Yeshua knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, these two verses have generated a storm of controversy among biblical scholars. The reason is, what is taught in John's Gospel seems to contradict what is taught in the synoptics. Now, hopefully you'll see that by the time we're done. I mean, this, is, this can get pretty technical. I don't want to go into great depth here, because I don't want to bore you, but I don't want to skip over it. I don't want to ignore the controversy because I think you need to look at it. I mean, people have used this controversy to say, see, the Bible's not inspired. These guys don't even agree with one another. When you find an apparent contradiction in the Bible, it's not the Bible. It's you. Okay? It's our understanding of the Bible. All right? Because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But so many commentators just skip over this issue. They don't even mention it. Like, we're in John. Let's just deal with John. Let's forget about what those other guys said. You know? Like, hoping you don't think about it. And most people probably won't. But uh, <laughs> So I want to look at, and the issue is this. This is the issue. Is the supper being talked about here, the Passover meal, as, prescri- as prescribed by the law of the Old Covenant? Is Yeshua sharing the Passover here? Is that what's happening? Now, some would argue, and I would be in this camp, that the supper mentioned here in verse 2 is not the Passover meal. In 13.2, he does not identify the supper as the Passover meal. He just simply says they're having a supper. And instead, 13.1 indicates that the meal took place before the Passover. Alright? So, that's kind of my position. I don't think this is dealing with the Passover meal. And I'm going to try to explain that now. In order to deal with this controversy that John and the synoptics disagree, or seem to, Some hold to what is called the two-calendar theory, which says that John's Gospel and the Synoptic Gospels agree. But the Passover meal Yeshua celebrated with His disciples was on the night before the Temple Passover because Yeshua used a different calendar than the Jews in Jerusalem. In Annie Joubert's book, titled The Date of the Last Supper, she argues that the two calendars were commonly used in the first century. And she's right there, okay? A lunar calendar of 354 days and a solar calendar of 364 days. The Romans had introduced the solar calendar, the Julian calendar, uh, to the Roman world in about 46 B.C. So there were two calendars. But Joubert contends 
that the Jews were divided over which calendar, the solar or the lunar, was divinely authorized. And that the Jews of Qumran, now the, the ones at Qumran, the Essenes, they're considered the, the purer Jews, the, the real Jews. They separated themselves from the corruption that was in Jerusalem at that time. <clears throat> and they said they celebrated the Passover on the solar calendar on a Thursday. Now, forget those days, okay, because I think they're wrong on the days, but I'm just telling you what she says, okay? She says they celebrated on Thursday, but the corrupt temple authorities in Jerusalem used the wrong calendar, and they celebrated on a Friday. Okay, so basically says, hey, we got two Passover meals, one, you know, Yeshua and His disciples in the Essenes, they did the spiritual one, and they did it on Thursday, the corrupt temple on Friday, all right? Now, their argument is that this difference in the calendars then is what John is reflecting. That's why John and the synoptics don't seem to agree, because the pure Jews, like Yeshua and his disciples, celebrated on Thursday. But the wicked temple priests, they went by the lunar calendar, and they were wrong. So, this is is not a good view, people. I mean, like I said, she wrote this whole book on this, and, you know, I'm sorry, but... And, and listen, John MacArthur following this idea, I, I assume he's following this idea, MacArthur writes this, the Galileans celebrated on Thursday night. See, this is how he gets around the two the differences. The Judeans on Friday. So celebrations began Thursday night. Now what I thought was strange is MacArthur just throws that out there. No evidence, nothing to back it up, nothing, just here you go. And you're supposed to just believe that, Right? Yeah, yeah, just do, you know. People, we have, to, we have to be Bereans. We can't believe what anybody says. You know, I beg you, don't believe what I say. You know, you've got to study it. You've got to look for yourself. Well, MacArthur goes on to say this. We know the exact date on which he was crucified, the 15th of Nisan, in the year 8030, at the Passover, at the very time when the lambs were being slaughtered, to be offered by the people as sacrifices. What is wrong with what MacArthur is saying here? Flat out, biblically wrong. The lambs are slaughtered on the 14th. The 14th of Nisan is Passover. That's when they kill the lambs. He says, at the very time the lambs were being slaughtered. The lambs weren't slaughtered on the 15th. 15th is the first of unleavened bread. People, this is important. Okay, These dates are important for a reason. Because if Christ was sacrificed on the 15th, then He does not fit the type of the Passover lamb. Because the lamb was slaughtered on the 14th, and He couldn't be the anti-type of that lamb. Alright? So, this two-calendar theory really doesn't work since a Passover lamb or kid, according to the law, could not be sacrificed anywhere except the temple. Alright? Deuteronomy 16.2 And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh your God from the flock or the herd at the place that Yahweh will choose to make His name to dwell. Where was the place that Yahweh chose to make His name dwell? It was at Jerusalem, in the temple of Jerusalem. That's the place Yahweh chose. That's where you went for Passover. And I think it's crazy to think that Yeshua and His disciples 
snuck into Jerusalem somehow, sacrificed in the temple, and the temple authority said, oh, that's okay, you go ahead and have your little deal, we'll do ours tomorrow. They're not going to put up with that stuff. No way. Luke 2.41, now his parents, Yeshua's parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. You can't have a Passover meal without a Passover lamb, and you can't have a Passover lamb unless it's sacrificed in the temple. Now this argument about the Passover meal and John and the Synoptic Gospel differences is a complex argument. Okay, there's no doubt about that. That's why the scholars argue about it. All right, and everybody's got a different opinion. I'm going to give you mine, and you know, you take that for what it's worth. Not a whole lot. All right. <clears throat> France argues that John's chronology is right. See, there's a difference in chronology between the synoptics and John. He argues that John is right and that the synoptics do not contradict it. Not agree with that because you can't have contradictions in Scripture. He says what Jesus ate was not the Passover, but a meal that anticipated Passover, since he knew that at the time of Passover, he would be hanging on a cross. Of course, this means that Jesus and his disciples could not have eaten an appropriately sacrificed lamb, since the temple authorities were unlikely to accommodate themselves to his divinely sanctioned sense of timing. I agree with that. Now, to strengthen his point, France adds that none of the four Gospels explicitly mention eating of a lamb. And I think that's important. You go through and read all the accounts, there's no mention about eating a lamb. That's fundamental to Passover, okay, to the meal. The Jerome Biblical Commentary summarizes current scholarship and assumes that John's day before is correct and that the Synoptic Gospels assert the meal's Passover symbolism. Here's what uh, the Jerome Biblical Commentary says that I think we have to grasp here. He says, we must always be reminded that the Gospels are not Western. Okay? That is so fundamental to our thought process. You know, as Heiser always says, you've got to get the Jews in your head. You've got to get them in your You've got to know what they think, what, how they view things. Because the way we view them Westernly is very different from the way they viewed them. All right? He says, we must always be reminded that the Gospels are not Western. They are not cause and effect. They are not chronological histories. The Jews didn't care much about chronology. They're telling a story. And the story is what's important. Not the chronology. He says, history is written in many ways. Not right or wrong. Not true or false. History is an explanation of the past to serve current issues, needs, perspectives. The real issue is who, why, wrote the history. He says, the best discussion of the genre of historical narratives and Gospels is Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. So he says, if you want to understand this whole concept here of the histories and how they're not very, you know, they're not all that concerned with chronology. And and if you're one who pays attention attention to detail, you'll read something you go, that chronologically doesn't fit with this over here. That's, they didn't really care about that. All right. Now let me ask you this. What had to happen biblically? Why could Yeshua not be having a Passover meal? What? Okay. <laughs> That's right. 
What had to happen before the Passover meal? Before you ate your meal, what'd you have to do? You had to kill your meal. I know that might be strange to us because, you know, we're in a different society totally. Some people don't know that the food in the store comes from animals, okay? It actually does, and you've got to kill them, all right? So before you could eat that Passover meal, you had to slay the Passover. And if Yeshua is the Passover lamb, how could he be partaking of the Passover meal? Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5-7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Yeshua is the lamb of God. We saw that in John 1.29. The lamb had to die before it could be eaten. So how do we have Yeshua having Passover meal without a Passover lamb? Now, just to get our thinking straight on how this all works, let's go back to Exodus 12 and look at the, what is prescribed by God there and see how this all fits together if we can. Alright, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses. All the men, the head of the household, you go out, you get a lamb. The tenth. Alright? Now keep that in mind. It's the tenth. Passover is the fourteenth. A lamb for a household. If your household is too small, well, there's only a couple of us, we don't really have enough for a lamb. Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. This lamb is a type of Christ, so no blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So the lamb has been in your house for four days. The significance of that is for examination. Okay, You're examining this lamb. You're making sure it's perfect. It's, it's the right lamb. I think another significance here is also you're getting real attached. Your kids are getting attached. And then you're going to slaughter this animal. Okay? You shall keep it till the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay, so on the 14th, at twilight, you kill the lamb. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the little of the houses in which they eat it. Now you know the whole significance of this is Passover. So the death angel would pass over the Israelites who obeyed the Lord, took the blood, put it on their doorposts. They shall eat the flesh that night. Alright, so we kill the lamb. That night, we're going to eat it. Roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. Now what's the main part of this Passover meal? It's the lamb. And when was the lamb to be killed? Well, verse 6 says, you will kill the lamb between, on the 14th day, that's important, that's the day the lambs are slaughtered. Remember, MacArthur said it's done on the 15th. I don't know where he got that from. 
All right? I don't know if it, it could have been just a typo. That's possible. But that's, you know, that's the problem putting things in print. <laughs> they kill the lambs at twilight. All right? That's what our text says. The literal Hebrew here reads, between the two evenings. Now, the phrase between the two evenings refers to the period of the day that goes from noon to 6 p.m., our time, all right? Noon to 6, between that, which would be exactly 3 p.m. on the 14th. The Lamb was a type. The anti-type was Yeshua, who was the Lamb of God who was killed on the very day at the very time the Passover lambs were being slaughtered on the 14th of Nisan at 3 p.m. That's when you slaughtered the lambs. Now, the exact Hebrew phrase, between the evenings, is used in Exodus 29, 38, and 39 to describe the time that the second daily sacrifice was to be offered. The first of the daily continual burnt offerings was offered at 9 a.m. in the morning. The second daily offering was at 3 p.m. Josephus, the Jewish historian, stated that the evening sacrifice was at the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. for us. So we must keep in our mind that the Hebrew community, taking its cues from Genesis 1, where the Bible says the evening and the morning were the first day, observes their day as starting at sundown. Now that's hard for us to grasp, I think, but once the sun gets dark, like today around 5 o'clock it's going to get dark, that's Monday. Once the sun goes down, now it's Monday. No, for us it's Sunday night, right? Not for them, it's Monday. It's the beginning of a new day. Now that normally is at 6, formally it's a sundown. They don't view midnight to midnight like we do, alright? So the 14th of Nisan began at sundown on the 13th of Nisan, right? It's 13th, sun goes down, all of a sudden now it's the 14th. But the Passover meal was not eaten until what day? The 15th, okay? Because they slaughtered the lambs at 3 p.m. You only got three hours left. They cleaned the lamb, they roasted the lamb, they got ready, they ate the meal technically on the first of unleavened bread. Because it says in Exodus, in the evening, that evening, which would have been the 15th. All right? So it was actually eaten on the 15th, which is the first day of unleavened bread. Look at Exodus 12.8. They shall eat the flesh that night. That's the 14th, but they're eating it that night, and as the sun goes down, now it's the 15th. Roasted on fire with unleavened bread. All right. So again, this, is the, this begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They were to eat this meal in haste with their staff in their hand, dressed ready to go. This is a picturing the Exodus journey. So, listen. Our Lord could not have eaten the Passover meal a day early. But you can't eat the Passover meal without a Passover lamb. And you can't eat a Passover lamb unless it was killed in Jerusalem on the 14th at 3 o'clock. So the Last Supper that we're seeing here in our text, the meal that the Lord is having, is not the Passover. The Last Supper was actually beginning at the end of that day or the very beginning of Passover is when they're actually having this meal. So it is the Passover, but it's the beginning hours of it. And the lamb wasn't slain till the next day. Now, before the feast of the Passover, 
So here we see that this supper that they're going to eat is before this. Now, it's easy to establish from the fourth gospel. Like I said, it's easy to establish from the fourth gospel. If you go back to the first three synoptics, you're going to have some difficulty here. That the people of Israel did not eat the Passover meal until sometime after Yeshua took part of the Last Supper. So you have the Last Supper, then you have these other events, and John's real clear on this. For example, look at uh, 1828. Then they led Yeshua from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. All right, what's you know what they're talking about here? This is they're preparing for the trial, the mock trial of Yeshua. So after he's eaten his supper, you know they go out to the garden. They come, they get him, they take him. So this is all after the supper. They <clears throat> now watch. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. The, speaking of the Jews that brought him, why? So that they would not be defiled, so they could eat the Passover. So they hadn't had their Passover. Lord's got to die before they even do that. This is obviously after the Last Supper. During the Last Supper, during while they're eating, the Lord sends Judas out, and he sends this. Says this in John thirteen twenty nine. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag. Yeshua was telling him, buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So some think he's telling them, go buy what we need for the feast. Well, we're having a meal right now, so it must be a different meal that they're talking about that he's buying stuff for, not for the meal they're having right then. When Judas accepted and dipped the bread from Yeshua at the Last Supper and left, that's a symbolic thing, okay? The Lord, they're at the Last Supper. The Last Supper is taking place on the day of preparation. And on the day of preparation, you would cleanse the house of all leaven. So Yeshua dips the dip and he gives it to Judas, and Judas leaves as a picture of the leaven being cleansed out of the house, all right? For the preparation of Passover week. Look at John 19 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. So from these texts in John, we see that the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, we see Judas' betrayal. We see Yeshua's trial and crucifixion all occurred before Israel ate their Passover. These all occurred on the 14th, the day of preparation, the day when the Israelites made all their preparations to partake of the Passover. See, they cleansed the leaven out of their home that day. They brought bitter herbs. They had the lamb slain at the temple at 3 o'clock. They dressed and roasted it, all in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which will begin three hours after Yeshua's death on the beginning of the 15th. All right, hopefully you got some kind of timeline, a timeline in your head now. So, I mean, that seems clear enough. If you stick to the Gospel of John, no problem. All right, clear enough. But the other Gospel writers say that the Last Supper was the normal Passover meal. These accounts are found in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. All three sets of the accounts begin by referring to the time of the Last Supper as the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's look at Matthew. This is going to confuse you. If you're thinking, okay, it's going to confuse you. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, what day is that? The 15th. The disciples came to Yeshua. We've got a problem already? 
How did they come to Yeshua if he died on the 14th at 3 o'clock? Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city and a certain man say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house. So, all right, this is about the Passover here. He says, with my disciples. And the disciples did as Yeshua had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? All right, let me back up here. So, you got, are you a little confused now? If you're not, I'm not doing my job. So, yes, you're supposed to be confused, all right? These texts apparently contradict John's account that plainly state that the Last Supper occurred before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. However, Mark and Luke both add details that help clarify this. Now, all right, now look what Mark says here. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. <laughs> Is that when the lamb was sacrificed? What's wrong with this, right? The lamb was sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan. Unleavened bread began on the 15th. Passover was a one-day feast followed by seven days, which they called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it wasn't unusual to refer to all eight days as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is what Mark is doing here. And you're going to find this as you go to the Gospels. They'll say, the Feast of Passover, and they'll be referring to all eight days. Or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they'll be referring to all eight days. Or even more than that, because some of them counted the time when you took the lamb on the 10th, they called that Passover. That began Passover. So this is where the problem comes in. You know, our thinking is like, this date, this starts, that date, this... You know, they're thinking, no, they, they expanded the meaning of Passover. Luke puts it this way. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Matthew 27, 62, Mark 15, 42, Luke 23, 54, all refer to that same day as the day of preparation. That would have been the 14th. Thus indicating they're referring to the same day that John called the day of preparation, when the Passover lamb was killed. And again, perhaps they initially used this phrase, you know, of a lot larger of a section than we think of. The 14th day... That was the day you made preparations for the feast that would begin the following day. Also notice that none of the four Gospel writers, and this is important, make any mention about a lamb being eaten at the Last Supper. Because the lamb hadn't been slain, so there wasn't a lamb to eat. Alright? The Passover lamb cannot be and never is killed on one of the days of unleavened bread. It is killed in the final hours of the 14th of Nisan in preparation for the feast. Now because the lamb is selected, washed, groomed, and observed for four days prior to the feast, that time period is commonly referred to as part of the Passover as well as the feast proper 
by some Jewish people. So this is where the you know problem comes in. They're using words, and we think when they say Passover, I'm thinking the 14th of Nisan. And they're thinking, well, the whole feast time from the 10th all the way to the end of unleavened bread. So, I mean, that's that's the issue we're dealing with here. To the Judeans, Passover was used of several things. It was used of, like I said, that whole period. It was used of the day when the lambs were killed. It was called Passover. The nightly meal when those lambs were eaten was called Passover, which typically was the unleavened bread. And even the day which followed after was called Passover. Likewise, the entire eight-day period, including the preparation day and the seven days of unleavened bread, were also called Passover. All right, let's go back to our text. With that is hopefully some kind of background. Now, before the feast of the Passover... If these words are taken as a heading, and I think they should be, of chapters 13 through 17, or all the way through 19, I guess, 13 through 19, it follows that the meal the disciples are about to have with Yeshua could not itself have been a Passover meal. But to avoid that conclusion, some take this clause to be an introduction just to the foot washing. In other words, before the Passover meal, they're only talking about foot washing. That's really stretching it, I think, to do that. It is my opinion that the events of this discussion, including the meal itself, take place, all take place before Passover. This phrase in uh, verse 1 of John 13 is a kind of introduction. It really is a title of this whole section. Before the Passover. Because the Passover is not going to happen until after he dies. And that takes us all the way to chapter 19. Alright? Now, how long before the Feast of Passover was this? Well, we know by the timeline already, you know, we started in chapter 12, it was only six days away, and we've seen different accounts have take place. So, I believe that this supper took place, it could have started right before Passover on the, on the 13th, and went into the 14th, could have started on the 14th, but anyway, it ends up there in the 14th. They're on Passover, the Feast of Passover, the first evening of it, Okay? This is, this is the last day of the Lord's life. His last 24 hours on earth. This is what's going on here. Alright, he says, before the Passover. And, you know, we went, we look back at Exodus chapter 12, and we, I think you all understand what the Passover was, what it was all about, what it pictured. But for the first century Jews and Israelites, the Passover and unleavened bread feast not only looked back in history to the time when God redeemed the children of Israel from slavery of the Egyptians, And when Israel was set aside to be a people of Yahweh's own choice, the covenant people of God. But it was also a time when the covenant people looked forward to the redemption of Israel when the Messiah would come and free His people from bondage and oppression of the Roman Empire and lead them on a new exodus to freedom again as nationhood. So the Passover to them wasn't just looking back. It was looking forward. Jewish, Jewish scholar Hamin Shaus writes of this looking for the Messiah at the Feast of Passover in his book, The Jewish Feast. He says this, The highest point in the evolution of Pesach came in the last century of the Second Temple. That's when Yeshua was alive. When the Jews suffered from the heavy oppression of the Romans. It was during this period that the Messianic hope flamed up And in the minds of the Jews, the deliverance of the future became bound up with the first redemption of Jewish history, the deliverance from Egypt. The Jews had long believed in the deliverance to come 
God would show the same sort of miracles that He had performed in redeeming the Jews from Egypt. You know, what He has to say here is so powerful because He's saying, you hear what He's saying, He's saying, well, we're looking for a time when He's going to redeem us again and we're going to see these same kind of miracles, just what they've been seeing with the Lord. And yet, they still didn't get it. They're, they're anticipating, they're looking forward to this, and here it is, and they're like, nope, that's not what we're looking for. That have been performed in redeeming the Jews from Egypt. This belief gained added strength in this period of Roman occupation and oppression. Jews began to believe that the Messiah would be a, a second Moses and would free the Jews the selfsame eve, the eve of Pesach. Pesach is Passover. All right? So Pesach became the festival of the second as well as the first redemption in every part of the world where Jews lived, especially in Palestine. Jewish hearts beat faster on the eve of Pesach, beat with the hope that this night the Jews would be free from the bondage of Rome, just as their ancestors were released from Egyptian slavery. So this is a feast where they're just anticipating release, anticipating a Messiah. And as they're all in this anticipation of Messiah, they're putting their Messiah to death on a cross. Now, the reason it is so important to understand these dates and when Messiah was really killed is because to fulfill the type of the Lamb, Yeshua had to die on the 14th, when the lambs were dying. Biblical typology takes the unity of both covenants and sees in the Old Covenant types and shadows something which prefigures something in the New Covenant. These types can be people, places, objects, Typological language in the Old Covenant is called a type. The counterpart in the New Testament is called the anti-type. Now that sounds maybe strange to us, but anti-type is literally the fulfillment of the type. Here's the picture, here's the reality. The picture is we got a lamb being slain. The reality is Christ is that lamb. Because the blood of bulls and goats never would take away sin. But Christ, they all pictured and pointed to Christ. He was the anti-type. A type always prefigures something future. A scriptural type and predictive prophecy are in substance the same thing. So prophecy is saying this is going to happen. The type is saying this is going to happen. It's a picture. And the typical significance of the Passover is very clear in the New Testament writings. There's probably no Mosaic institution is a more perfect type than this. The first Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, and almost 2,000 years later, Yeshua was crucified on the 14th of Nisan, while Israel was celebrating their Passover. Here, Yeshua, the true Lamb of God, was being crucified. And that's how John introduced Him. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They didn't get it. He was a Lamb which that ancient Passover typified. He died to save us from God's judgment just as the Lamb died instead of the firstborn. As those ancient firstborn redeemed by the blood of the Lamb therefore belong particularly to Yahweh, so we now who are redeemed through Christ's blood belong to God in a very special sense. 1,600 years before the resurrection, Yahweh predicted in type and shadow 
that Yeshua would be crucified on the 14th, that He would rise from the dead three days later on the first day of the week, on the Feast of first fruits. And guess what? It happened exactly as God said it would. And, and to tell you people, this is, this is so important to every one of us because prophecy proves the truthfulness of the Bible. God said certain things would happen, and they happen exactly as He said on the time they said He would. Listen, there's no other book in the world that contains the kind of specific prophecies found all throughout the pages of the Bible. Nothing. Nothing can compare. And that's why the feasts are so important. Because they lay out a timeline for us of when these things are going to happen. First coming, we see the first four feasts. Second coming, we see the last three feasts. All fulfilled, all on time, just as God said it would be. Alright, let's go back to our verse. When Yeshua knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, Remember, he was kept saying in the Gospels, it's not my time, it's not my hour. And then as the Gentiles came, he said, the hour, now it's the hour. All right, this is it. The hour he's referring to here is the hour of his departure, the hour of his death, the hour of his glorification. New here is a perfect active participle. The coming Greeks to see John in 1220 showed Yeshua that his hour had come. All right, the Greeks are here, it's time to go. It was the hour of his death. The hour of his glorification, the hour for him to return to the Father. Now, the verb here, depart, metabino, has the connotation in Lazarus' writing of a transition from a fallen physical existence into the new age of the Spirit and eternal life. He's leaving this world. He's going into a different realm, people. He's leaving the earthly realm. He's going into the spiritual realm. It's time for him to depart. And the word world here, is the Greek cosmos, which is important in this section of the Gospel. In our, ver- in our chapters here, 13-17, through 17, in the Upper Room Discourse, this word world appears 40 times. And it represents the mass of lost humanity out of which Yeshua had called His disciples and from which He would depart shortly when He returned to the Father. World draws a sharp contrast between Yeshua's own, His disciples, and the mass of lost humanity. He says, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now we've seen the word love a few times in this opening 12 chapters in the book of Signs, but the prominent words up to this point have been the words life and light. But now in the Upper Room Discourse, which deals with the ministry that Yeshua has with reference to the believers, love becomes one of the key words. The object of the love of God in Christ in these chapters is His own. Which refers to the newly forming people of God. The church, the community of the elect. Yeshua loved His own and He loved them from eternity past. And having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Now, the New American Standard Study Bible has a footnote that says this, the Greek noun... Agape, love, and the verb agapao occur eight times. I counted seven, but I don't want to argue with them, okay? In chapters 1 through 12. So they say love's only used eight times in those chapters. But it's used 31, and again, I counted 30. 
It's used 30 times in chapter 13 through 17. There are more references to the Savior's love for His own. What do I do? Here, then you're going to find anywhere in Scripture, in one location. All right, There's just an emphasis here in this upper room discourse on the love of God. And he says He loved them to the end. Now, the words to the end here could be taken adverbally to mean utterly, to the most, uh, to the utmost. But if end here, it's the word telos, if it's taken temporally, the clause could mean that Yeshua loved them to the very end of His life. Now, it seems clear to me here that telos has a double meaning because Lazarus does this constantly. He uses the word, it's got two meanings. He means he loved them to the uttermost. He loved them completely and he loved them to the very end of life itself to the point of death. That was the extent of his love. He loved them and then he died for them. That's what his love was. A form of this same word, telos, was used in Yeshua's last word from the cross where he said, it is finished. Tell us, it's done. He loved them to the end. He said, it's done. Now, it's interesting that we learned from the Egyptian papyra that this tell us had the connotation of paid in full, which I think is kind of interesting. Tell us. It's finished, he said on the cross, meaning it's paid in full. It's done. Do you understand that? Do you grasp that, people? You know, I know there's some days you feel really bad because you messed up. But I want you to know that that was paid for 2,000 years ago. It is finished. It's paid in full. There's nothing left for us to pay. And I think when we think we can add to that, we're saying, Lord, ah, thanks, but you didn't quite do enough. So I'll help you out. And it's pride and it's wrong because He paid it all. Every bit of our sin debt was taken care of by Him, paid in full. It is finished. He loved them, and He loved them to the very end. This is what love is about, people. Love is sacrificial, and that's what we're going to see in this section. Now, what we have to understand here, he says, let's back up a little bit, He loved His own. The love of God is the root of election. Why does God choose? God chooses because He loves. So, God's love is sovereign. He is sovereign in the exercise of His love, which means He chooses whom He loves. And listen, it means this. God doesn't love everybody. Now, I know that is not a popular view. I know when I say that, people get upset. But it's clearly what the Word of God teaches. He didn't love Esau, Romans 9.13. Esau have I hated. I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. That's clear. Most people don't even know that verse is in there, okay? So how will you argue? Will you say, well, he loves everybody but Esau? No, I don't think that's a good argument. You know, one of the, one of the most popular beliefs of our day is that God loves everybody. I mean, I hear it all the time. Everybody loves everybody. I'm like, great. You know what that, if that was true, you know what that would mean? Everybody's going to be saved. That would mean universalism was true. If God loves everybody, then everybody gets saved. 
Because what? wouldn't you feel kind of bad if God loved you and didn't save you? Sent you to destruction? So it's one of the most popular views of our day because I think it makes people feel good. But the idea that God loves everybody, listen to me, is a modern belief. It's a modern belief. The writings of the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans, they'll be searched in vain for any such concept. You're just not going to find it there. The fact is that the love of God is a truth for the saints. Okay? With the exception of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And we dealt with that there. World there doesn't mean everybody. It means He loves Jews and He loves Gentiles. He loves the world. All kinds of people. With the exception of John 3.16, not once in the four Gospels do we read of the Lord Yeshua telling sinners that God loved them. It's not there. How about this? The book of Acts. The book of Acts records the evangelistic efforts of the church. Their Pentecost happens, the church is born, they're going out and they're preaching the gospel. Listen to me, not once in the book of Acts does it mention the love of God. Well, those apostles messed up because the four spiritual laws, the first thing, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? That's not how they preached it. You know, how can, how can you look at the book of Acts and see the absence of the love of God there and say, that's how you're supposed to do it? It's not how they did it. They talked about the wrath of God. Because you've got to know you have an issue before you can come to even know the Lord. God's love is never referred to at all in the book of Acts. That seems odd to me. But when you come to the epistles, which are all addressed to the saints, the holy ones, we have a full presentation of the love of God. Because he's talking to his church, and he loves his church. Look at Hebrews 13, I mean 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. See, God's love is restricted to the members of his family. If God loves all men, the distinction and the limitation here mentioned is meaningless. He disciplines the one He loves. Well, He disciplines everybody, obviously, because He loves everybody. No. No, He disciplines His children. God only chases whom He loves. This is a reference to believers, to the elect. Because you're His child, He disciplines you. That's how God treats His children. He loved His own, and He loved them to the end. Believers, Christ loved us so much, He left the glory of heaven, became a man, and died for us. And what we're going to see in this upper room discourse is that He calls each and every one of us to that same kind of love. Now, just think about that for a minute, okay? The same kind of love. He says, I want you to love one another. How? however you feel love is, right? Love one another as I have loved you. Left the glory of heaven, became a man, which that's, talk about humiliation. That's the kenosis, the self-emptying of Christ. He became a man, and He died for us. And He says, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Our love for Christ, our love for Christ, is demonstrated by our love for one another. 
If you choose to be not to be uncomfortable, I would suggest you stop this series now because it's going to get ugly. In the sense of our responsibilities. Because listen, from here on out, the Lord's talking to His people. And He's telling them, here's what I want from you. I mean, if you just focus on that for a second, I want you to love each other as I love you. And that's impossible. Apart from a dependent walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, this is a difficult text. I pray You'd give Your people the heart of Bereans, Lord, that they would not accept what I'm saying, but they would look at this for themselves. They would compare Scripture with Scripture. They would call out to You for wisdom. Teach us, Lord. And Father, I pray for us as we get into this upper room discourse, some really heavy stuff, Lord, on the calling that You have put on Your church. Not about showing up at church on Sunday, not about doing this or doing that, but about loving other people as You have loved us. Lord, give us a heart for this. Do we realize what you're saying and walk in it? Thank you, Father, for your grace. Amen.